Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.org, where we discuss biblical questions from the audience each week. Uh, welcome to everybody joining me, uh, joining us through my Facebook page today. If you have any questions, please feel free to leave those in the comments below, whether it's questions about our show today or other Bible questions you have. We want to try to engage as many people as we can, so please feel free to uh, join the conversation. Our panelists are Scott Smelser from here in Gettysburg. Hey, Scott. Hey, Stephen. Uh, Drew is with us from Holmesdale, Pennsylvania. Hey, Drew. How you doing, Stephen? Did you hit the broadcast live thing? I just now did hit the broadcast thing. Okay, good. That's all right. I forgot. I caught up with hitting the mute and unmute buttons and things yes. and forgot to hit that button. So the answer is yes. Yes, I did. Just good now. to see both of you guys. Yes, and I'm Stephen uh, from Gettysburg. And we want to welcome everybody to the to the show today. Great. And um, Stephen, let me just add, too, that if anyone's uh, in the audience watching live from the BibleQuest.org app, please use the Q&A window to post your uh, questions. And like Stephen said, we do want to hear questions from you from the audience. If you want to talk about some, what we're talking about today, today's questions, or bring up something new that you want to bring in, please use the Q&A box in your app window. Now, as we're waiting for questions coming in, guys, uh, here's one from a viewer from last week, and it's really a two-part question from two different people, and I was able to put them together. Um, the first part of it is, since we uh, cannot command other people to love us, but yet God commands us that we love him, how do you reconcile that? Hmm. Interesting. Now, the second part of that is, since the Bible's primary teaching is to love one another, does love and tolerance therefore equal affirmation? Hmm. Yeah, that's a very relevant question right now, yeah. for sure. So can you repeat the first part of the question again? Yeah, the first part is, since we cannot command other people to love us, and I'll explain what I think the question uh, means. Okay. But yet God commands us that we love him. How do you reconcile that? And I think giving part of that answer away, I think it's like we cannot command someone to love us. is like saying you can't make someone love you. Mm -hmm. That might be where that question is coming in from. But yet God does command us to love him. Mm -hmm. so, and if yeah. that's the point, God commands him, but he doesn't make us. That, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he does say, I mean, the greatest command Jesus said is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is the second greatest command. But it is notable that God, even though he is able to do anything, he's all-powerful, he does not force us to love him, which, which I think is really remarkable when you think about it. Um, that God gives us the ability to reject him, as you just see people over and over in Scripture, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, rejecting God, rejecting his will. Um, God could have made us differently, but from everything we can see, uh, we have the ability to love him or to reject him. And look, um, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Scott. Let's look at the premise there. Since we cannot command somebody to love us. Now, Obviously, it's not going to be effective to go around telling people, love me. Uh, it's not going to work. But <laughs> a good it way to get people to not to, love you. 
have the idea maybe, and I think it would be a common idea in our culture, uh, that nobody can command anybody to love somebody else. And the Bible has commands beyond loving God. The Bible commands love your enemies. The Bible commands love your neighbor. The Bible commands husbands love your wives. Uh, older women are told to train young women to love their husbands. And so it might be good to just kind of back up and think about uh, what kind of love we're talking about in general and in what ways it can be commanded. Uh, so the, the general premise of, of like if I say, Drew, love me. <laughs> Stephen, love me. Everybody, <laughs> love me. That's, that's no. obviously not productive. Productive. It reminds me of the fella, friend of mine, I'd set him up on, on a, uh, maybe it was a blind date with a mutual friend who was later quite upset with me for setting up that date. <laughs> uh, so I went out with her. She did not care for him. And when he asked her to go out again, she said, no. His response was, you are not being fair. Because if you would keep going out with me, even though you don't like me, if you would keep going out with me, you would learn to like me. Well, that's pretty pretty presumptuous. And surprise, surprise, it did not work. Wait a minute, wait a minute. minute. Are you telling me that she did give him more chances then? No, 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 it did not work. His approach that you're not being fair, you should keep dating me until you like me, did not work. Who who would have thought it? Uh, But that maybe helps draw the distinction of what we're talking about. That girl had every right to say, I'm not interested in this guy. I don't want to go out with him again. That has to do with an emotional thing. But in the Bible, we're commanded to love beyond emotion. There's there's emotional love instructed also. Doesn't Peter tell brethren to be what? And Paul talked about we're to be tenderly affectioned toward one another. So there, there are some instructed emotions. But let's take love your enemy as yourself from Matthew chapter 5. That's God commanding us to have love for people that are not lovely. How does that work? Well, it it works in a lot of ways, the same way that God has first loved us. First John 4, we love because he first loved us. God has loved his enemies. If God didn't love his enemies, he wouldn't have loved anyone because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yeah. And in the same way, God has looked down on us. He's seen us in it, even in our rebellion and he has sacrificed for us. He's given his own son for us, not because we deserved it uh, and not because we were in some way lovable or even likable uh, while we were still enemies. Yeah. Exactly. Romans yeah. five. Enemies. Uh, and, and it's interesting that that is the kind of love that God has modeled for us. When right. God is asking us to love our enemies, he's not asking us to do something he hasn't already done himself. Amen. And he set that standard really high. I also think about the example of Jesus in Mark chapter 10. And, and this spills also over into our second part of this question, Drew, if I understand it correctly about love and equaling acceptance. In Mark chapter 10, with the, the rich young man who runs up to Jesus there, um, and he says, you know, what, what good thing do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And he says, you need to keep the commandments. He says, I've done that. 
And then at Jesus uh, in verse 20 or verse 21, uh, Mark 10, 21, it says, and Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. It is Jesus loves not just by telling everybody you're great just the way you are. Right. Um, he, he loves this rich young man by saying, right, you want to know what you need to do? Here's what you need to do. And that's, uh, that's a hard lesson to learn. Um, but that's true love. Jesus is the model of love, and he shows us how to love here. Yeah, and a couple passages come to mind, like uh, John 3.16, going back to what you earlier said. God so loved the world that he gave his son uh, to us, who, like you said, Romans 5, enemies. And I like your distinction there. Part of what our society wants to have love mean is to say, you're great. I, I affirm you. What you're doing is great. And that's, that's not what love is. Um, let, let's look at what love is in the instances of our enemies. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You've heard that it was said, Thou shalt love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus speaking, I say unto you, love your enemies. And then specifically, how does he spell out that love? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Yeah. I, what would that prayer look like? Uh, is that, and please help their beatings to be more severe. <laughs> help, them, <laughs> help them to throw the rocks more, you know, with more zeal. That's not, that's not what you're praying. What types of things would you pray for an enemy? You persecute well, that that they would see the error of their ways. Hopefully, that that the Lord might act on their behalf and uh, turn turn them around. Right, and in Romans twelve, when we see a picture of loving your enemy, what does Paul specifically say to do? Instead of doing evil to your enemy, he says in verse, "Don't take vengeance." Instead, verse twenty, and this is from Proverbs also. If your enemy is hungry, do what? Feed him. Yeah. And if he's thirsty, do what? Give him something to drink. Yeah. And in so doing, what might happen? Well, the term there is put pour coals, burning coals on his head. Yeah. And what does that mean? Activate his conscience, hopefully. Right. <laughs> is just uh, right. have him realize that he's doing wrong and feel bad about that. Wow, I'm doing terrible things to them. They're doing good things in return. I need to change. I, I need to. I need to do something yeah. different here. Yeah. And then it ends with this: Don't be overcome of evil. Overcome evil with good. If somebody treats me badly, and so then I start treating them badly, what one, good or evil? Evil's winning. Now you got two sources of it. But if someone's treating us badly and we do good to them. And then it causes them to rethink their behavior and feel guilty and be motivated to something higher and start behaving better. What one? Good one. Yeah, yeah. So if, if we come back to this idea, we can't command love. Well, it's not our job to go around commanding love, but it's, it's God has done that. Jesus has done that, even to our enemies. That doesn't mean I have warm fuzzies and wish my enemy would go on vacation with me. <laughs> but 
it means that I want what's good for him and I should act in a way that's good for him. So let's look at the second part of that question then. Since the Bible's primary teaching is to love one another, does love and tolerance therefore equal affirmation? Now that's almost a trick question. Let me ask this before you get to the meat of this question. Does the Bible teach tolerance? Certainly. Passages like Ephesians 4, that we're to have tolerance for one another, we're to, to bear with one another. Some translations put it that way. Yeah, so maybe the term tolerance in this question is not the same uh, definition or meaning of tolerance, because in this case, we're looking at affirmation. In other words, love someone the way they are and affirming that it's okay with them. You're loving them regardless of their behavior and actions. We're not talking about someone that's harming us, but someone is performing actions that doesn't have any effect on us personally. So how how does that work out? You know, it's kind of interesting if we think about what it means to love. From a what-not-to-do standpoint, Romans 13 says what? Love your neighbor, and that covers a lot of things you wouldn't do. Paul says in Romans 13, if you love your neighbor, you're not going to do what? You're not going to steal from him. You're not going to commit adultery with his wife. You're not going to lie about him. Right, because love does no ill to his neighbor. But loving your neighbor goes beyond not doing ill because the priest and the Levite that walk past the man on the side of the road that's been beaten by robbers in the tin, they don't do those things to him, but they also don't help him. And so the good Samaritan, who was of a different race, had compassion on him, helped him, and illustrate what it meant to love your neighbor. So love doesn't do bad things, but love does do good things. Good things, yeah. Um, we've had a few comments on the Facebook thread. Um, and some of this comes back to like Mark 10. Um, but uh, Emma Hammetry commented that biblical tolerance seems to be more about patience and loving kindness, perhaps. Yeah. I think that is a helpful distinction to make. Um, I think as with many things in the scripture, there's kind of bookends, there's kind of extremes that we can go to. And with tolerance, the idea of tolerance is putting up with something that is perhaps unpleasant, that you don't like it. And to an extent, we have to have tolerance. If we, if we had no tolerance with one another and anybody did anything that upset us and we just, you know, blow up at that. Well, no, we've got to have patience with them. Right. We need to love them, deal with that. But that's not so much talking about things that are sinful right. as things that are just frustrating or they're growing or things like that. Um, on the other hand, if we become overly tolerant in a sense, you look at passages like first Corinthians five, where there's a man in the congregation sinning with his father's wife. And they're like, look at us, you know, we're kind of boastful about that. We tolerate this. And he's saying, you can't tolerate that. Stop it. <laughs> Get that guy out of there. Right. The caveat, so, uh, not the caveat, but the support, what you're saying is, if uh, Jesus said that the uh, when, when the, the young fella asked asked him, "Teach, what's the great commandment in Matthew 22? What's the great commandment in the law?" And he said, "You shall love your uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it: you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend 
all the law and the prophets, okay? The first one is a relationship to God. So what you're talking about, they were tolerating and loving the sinful couple that was among them. They weren't loving God. They were loving them in a more of a, I guess, a, a human way. But they weren't loving God in respecting God's laws. That this is you don't do this behavior. Mm-hmm. So well, the first not. commandment then is really telling us, I guess, putting some definition on what kind of love we're giving our neighbor, offering to our neighbor. Yeah, I think that's interesting. There's a, there's a similar point that I heard made about the wisdom from above in James chapter three right. that I thought was really thought provoking. Is James chapter three uh, contrasting the you know things from below, the wisdom, um, and then the wisdom from above, uh, it says, verse James 3.17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, yes, then peaceable. Yes. And if we get those two out of whack, we get, we get way off track um, because lots of times we just want to have peace. Just want to have peace. Just don't tell anybody they're wrong. Make sure everybody feels accepted. Peace, 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 peace. Now, we need peace to an extent. But the wisdom from above is first pure. If there's yeah. something impure, if there's something sinful, that has to be addressed. And it needs to be the truth in love. We don't just go around bashing people. But if there's no purity, then there really can't be peace because we don't have peace with God. Uh, in, that idea, same, in that same verse, too, um, Stephen, it says, open to reason. Mm-hmm. We have to start using reason. It's not just an emotional um, effect. Using our intellect and reason to understand what is uh, that God expects of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Scott? And this idea on affirmation and love, did Jesus love the people he died for? Yes. Yeah, yeah, of course. Did that mean that he was affirming that those people were already right? Mm. Absolutely not. Does Paul love people in the sense that he suffers and goes to a lot of trouble to bring the gospel to them? Is that an act of love? Mm -hmm. So when he gets to a city, does he get up and say, hey, you don't need to repent. Everything you're doing is good. No, it was a message of love that pointed out to people that they needed to repent. So this idea that love means uh, just affirming. um, Let's take parents and children. Proverbs uh, thirteen twenty four, uh, he that withholds discipline hates the child, but he that loves him, you know, disciplines and corrects them. Yeah, that's right. And I, that is also true. A little bit later in the book of Proverbs, go over to Proverbs twenty seven. It talks about friendship, um, and it says Proverbs twenty seven verse five and six: Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the yes. kisses of an enemy. And we yes. need to surround ourselves with people who will tell us yep. we're wrong. If we just surround ourselves with people who say, you're so great, you're so wonderful, everything you do is just perfect, then yep. like we're never going to grow. We're never going to. Uh, but if we surround ourselves with people who, who do love us, who appreciate us, but love us enough to say, hey, you're doing well here, here, and here, but you got to fix this. Like you, uh, you, you gotta, you gotta change if you're going to grow, if you're going to be pleasing to God. And depending on our love, we, we do that in a tender, gentle way because we love that. That's, that's right. Harsh. There's also a distinction we need to remember 
between the stance that we have to take with a brother in Christ that's betrayed the Lord and someone who's never come to the Lord. Mm-hmm. So like Paul, he's saying when this man in the church is living in fornication, he's saying, don't eat with him. Don't keep company with him. He needs to be ashamed. We want his soul saved. Uh, a little leaven levels is a lump. And then he said in verse nine, I'm reading for first Corinthians five. I wrote to you in my letter to have no company of fornicators, not at all meaning with the fornicators of this world or the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Then you had, you'd have to go out of the world. As it is, I wrote to you not to keep company if a man that is named a brother be a fornicator. Uh, verse 12, what about judging them that are without? Do not you judge them that are within. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're, we're not to be all, you know, build a monastery and hide from the sinners and hide from the world or, or go to work and say, well, I can't work on this assembly line because that person is a fornicator and that person is a drunkard. Interact with those people. Uh, Paul, you remember in Acts 19 who had said Paul's friends were? Some of his friends told him not to go into the theater. Who, who were those friends? The Asiarchs. That would be city officials that would have been involved in paganism. Uh, so we can have friends in the world. And we need to treat them right. And we can look for opportunities to teach them. But we it's not our job to refuse to eat with them or associate with them like the church needed to stop doing with this fellow who claimed to be a brother in Christ uh, and faithful to Christ in, in court. Yeah. We've got a comment here from Natalie Wilson says, this is a good point about loving them. We sometimes get so wrapped up in the world's definition of love that we forget what God says about love. If we're too scared to confront someone, then we don't truly love them because we would save them from the path they're heading down. And Natalie, that's, that's absolutely right. Um, We've got to be willing to like, we've been talking about love God first and then love our neighbor as ourself. And that means that if they're, They're heading in the wrong direction. We love them enough to correct them. Um, And sometimes that takes different forms, you know? I mean, we've talked about doing that with gentleness and love, but I think it's kind of interesting there at the end of the book of Jude that he gives some different uh, admonitions as to how we might approach someone. He says in Jude verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And so some people, you've got patience, you work with them. Um, with other people, you snatch them out of the fire. You don't just kind of gently point out, hey, your hair's on fire. You know, like you <laughs> might, sometime you might think about doing something about that, but just, you know, just want you to know. Just want you to know. Yeah, you know, you, you do something immediately about that. Um, uh, other biblical examples of that uh, – uh, when Apollos only knew the baptism of John, you know, Aquila and Priscilla took him aside privately, explained to him the way of God more accurately. When Peter was being a hypocrite, uh, when the people came from James, Paul stands up in front of everybody and confronts him. Both of those things were right, but it depends on the circumstance. And love means that we don't just decide to correct someone but love thinks about how it might be most helpful to them. How, 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 what's the need? Uh, Cause sometimes they need a kick in the pants and sometimes they need a, a hand on the shoulder and a word, you know, a loving word to say, Hey, you might want to think about this. And if we love people, we'll try to figure out what would be most helpful to them. Okay. And 
Uh, I'm just typing in on Facebook telling people we're ready for some more questions, and so we'll just mention it here too. People, we are ready for some more questions. Yeah. Uh, so if somebody's got a question, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Well, uh, and I, and I'm hoping we have one. I have one here that we got from last week also, but did okay. any, any other well, new questions come in? Steven? Yeah, before, I don't, not that I can see right now, we do have a comment from Emma. They said, that's a good reminder. We aren't the police of the world. We're lights to them. How will they see the light if we want to run, or, run, or oh, run away good. from being near them? It's different when someone has trampled underfoot the gospel after already knowing Christ. That is very well put. Very good. Uh, we're not the police of the world. We're the lights to them. <laughs> yeah. Who, whose comment was that? That was Emma Hammondry. That was very good. Yeah. Thank you, Emma. That was good. Um, well, Drew, what's your other question there? Okay, this other question is a little bit more challenging to, to you guys. I want to see how you deal with this one. Do you see any connection between the events in the world today and the behavior of the population? Do you believe that Satan has been allowed to go about deceiving the world at this present time? And obviously this is referring to Revelation 20 about uh, Satan being re uh, released. Where do you want to go with that one? Well, I think one thing that's really important is we think about, especially the book of Revelation and the language of the book of Revelation, is that uh, we're dealing with um, a book that is heavily rooted in Old Testament language. And it's highly figurative in the way that it talks about different things. And it also, at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book, says that these things generally have to do with things that are going to happen very soon for those people in the first century. And so we have to just be really careful about taking uh, you know, phrases or ideas from the book of Revelation and suddenly thinking, oh, is this that thing? Is this that thing? And we can get into a lot of trouble by just kind of wildly taking a phrase kind of out of its context and then saying, oh, maybe this is happening right now. And there's lots of popular books that come out periodically that do that kind of thing. And we'll try to connect current world leaders with things in the book of Revelation. And uh, those things kind of come and go. So it's just a general thing. We need to be very cautious about the context when we're talking about things in Scripture. Scott? There's a high, high ratio of incidents that books have tied to, oh, this is what this is uh, about biblical prophecy or the book of Revelation. I've got one from the 1930s, maybe early 30s, and it's saying Mussolini looks like he is the Antichrist. And they're all talking about recent events in the world that seem to be a sign of the end. Aeroplanes dropping bombs. You know, and so uh, people are always kind of looking for things. Uh, that said, at the end of the book of Revelation, you've got the beast, which I believe represents the Roman Empire there. And the you remember, Satan has been pictured in chapter 12. He's cast out of heaven at the ascension of Christ. After he's died for our sins and ascended to the right hand of uh, God, Satan is thrown out of heaven by Michael and his archangels, or excuse me, and his angels. And then um, he's angry and he's going to attack the church. And he raises up this world power, the, this beast, the Roman Empire, that attacks the church, which it did. Then it says at the, at the end of Revelation 19 that that beast is thrown into the lake of fire and the devil is restrained. He's not thrown into the lake of fire yet. That'll come later in 20. 
he's put in the best and change where he can't do what he'd been doing. Then there's kind of a Hail Mary pass in the book of Revelation. It talks about, and then a thousand years. So we're past the immediate times back then, and it's throwing down towards the future, and it says that he will deceive the nations again. I don't know exactly uh, what's that to be. Um, I'll give you one little thought. I'm not going to press this at all, uh, but it, I, I think it's possible. Uh, what was happening during the days of the Roman Empire? Man was being exalted. Caesar was being exalted to the position of God, and they were worshiping him. But look at his number. It is the number of man. They're being deceived into worshiping Caesar. They're being told if they uh, worship Christ that they are anti-Christ. No, excuse me. They're atheists, and they need to repent and change so that they can be forgiven. Uh, everything was upside down. Uh, Christians were the ones that were hated and persecuted. And how might that play out in the future? Something similar to that as it describes over the the nations again. Here's one possibility. The idea of humanism takes God out of the picture and exalts who? Man. Man. Okay. And if things continue in the direction that some people would like them to continue, are there a lot of humanists in this world, secular humanists and atheists, who would like to marginalize and potentially persecute Christians? I think so. We're already seeing it to some extent. Could that be um, what's described? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, Here's one. Go ahead, Steve. Here's one thought on that. We have a couple of questions that we'd like to get to here in just a second that have yeah. come in. I want to just acknowledge those real quick. Is a thought on that, on Satan specifically deceiving the nations. Right. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, what was Satan doing? Deceiving. Deceiving people. Yeah. In the Old Testament, what was Satan doing? Deceiving. In the New Testament, what is Satan doing? Deceiving. Deceiving people. Yeah. And so it's, it's going to be really hard to, to, to nail down uh, right now. Okay. Oh, now he's deceiving people. This is the deception the talking about here. Right. Um, it, it's hard to say exactly what that is, but Satan's in the, the deceiving business. He's, the, he's a liar, the father of lies. And he's been deceiving people. He will be deceiving people as long as God allows this earth to stand, from what I can tell. And so we just need to be very hesitant about trying to nail that down, but always be alert for his deceptions. Um, to detail on that, uh, sometimes people look at the binding of Satan in Revelation 20, and they might think, oh, this is where Satan won't be active and there will be no evil. No, no, no. Look at the book of Revelation. He's not cast down to the earth and begins deceiving the nations until after the ascension of Christ. So you have him in the heavens, then cast down, attacks the church, then restrained, then comes out and attacks again, then thrown in the lake of fire the day of judgment. All right. Was there sin in the world before the ascension of Christ? Yeah. Yes, as you've just illustrated. Why, is there sin in the world today? Yes, there, there's always sin in the world. So his restraining isn't a total restraint. I would compare it maybe to this, make this a simple analogy. If there's a pit bull running around loose, look at, woe to the earth, there's a pit bull running around. <laughs> if your neighbor puts him on a chain so that he's not able to do everything he had been able to do before, that doesn't mean he's not still biting people and ripping them up if they go within the parameters of his chain. 
he's the pit bull is not being burned up. He's just restrained by a chain. And it talks about a point that'll be released. Uh, and it says, and he will once again uh, deceive the nations on, on some level. But as Stephen pointed out, there's been deception going along all along in general. Right. Hey, Scott. Yes. I didn't hear that uh, explanation that way before. So go back to your analogy of this pit bullets on a chain. Let's regardless of how, let's just say it's a long chain. But if you're outside that chain, he's not having an effect on you. Maybe he's scaring you. But if you go in within his area. Oh, yeah. Okay, you're you're being, is that is that the analogy you're making today that even though he's Satan's chained, people are still going within his oh yeah jurisdiction. Yeah, let, let's listen to the uh, the language of Peter, for example, just on a moral point. Uh, Peter, um, turning to First Peter chapter five. Be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Whom withstand steadfast in your faith. So, you know, you withstand him, don't let him get you. But if we don't stand in our faith, or James puts it how, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Flee from you. But if we don't resist the devil, if we don't withstand, if we go over there and try to pet the lion or <laughs> scratch the ear behind the pit bull, uh, what's going to happen? Yeah. Done in. Well, um, we got another question here that we may not have time to do justice to this week, um, but some thoughts on uh, Jane Bragwell asks, uh, can you suggest practical ways for women to work in personal evangelism while staying within their role of subjection? That is oh, Jane's question. Um, that, that's a that? great question. Excellent question. I would like to – go ahead, Drew. Well, I said before you get to that, though, are we done with this other question? Um, because we didn't get, we talked about the, 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 the loosing of Satan and the binding, but what about the events that are going on today? The first part of that question, if I can get back to it, says, do you see any connection between the events in the world and the behavior of the population? Uh, so with your analogy, I'm wondering, well, yeah, the behavior, the people are going into that realm. <laughs> within the chain where that pit bull is, or any of that uh, behavior causing or have an effect on the events going on in the world? A lot of things are interconnected, events and behavior of people. The Old Testament says God judges nations, and it's based on their behavior and everything. But we also need to be cautious, as Stephen has said. If we start trying to say, oh, this event means this and that event means that, we can end up making the mistake of Job's three friends. Mm -hmm. They look and they saw bad things happen to you. You're a bad person. God is displeased with you. So, you know, it's, I I think it would be real fun if these churches where they have their testimonial line and how has God blessed you? And they get up and they tell about their raise or their RV or whatever, or their promotion. And and then, Oh, see how blessed he is. He's faithful with God. I'd like to just put Paul and Job in that testimonial line and see how quickly they got kicked out. Uh, so we just need to be careful about that. Thing. But this question about, uh, look at Philippians 3, uh, to Carl's question. Uh, this is a really... Um, Jane, Jane Bragwell. Yes, yes, that Jane had. I, and before I read this text, um, I've been up here, here in Gettysburg uh, for some years, and, and work up here has grown. Some years ago, we needed to 
we'd outgrown our building and needed to build a, a new building um, and have enjoyed being up here. But I'll tell you, in the years that I've been here, I would say most of the Bible studies that I've had uh, have been set up by the women of the church. Uh, they've been just just so um, important in the role of making contacts, getting studies, living lives that were lights of the world, that, that created opportunities, uh, people seeing them, people seeing their children, people seeing their families, people seeing their interest in the word and they're reaching out to people. And then, uh, so a lot of the work's already done by the time you get invited to, oh, I found somebody that will come over for a, you know, a study. And so I like this verse in Philippians chapter four. Verse two, I exhort Euodia and I exhort Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. It may be that these two women have gotten a little bit of distance in them since Paul had been there. But he says, yeah, I beseech you also, true yoke fellow, help these women, for they labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Uh, there's one couple that Paul mentions over and over and over. He mentions them in 1 Corinthians. He mentions them in Romans. Uh, he mentions them in writing to Timothy. They're talked about in the book of Acts. What couple am I thinking about? Is that Priscilla and Aquila? Yeah. And often, Paul will say Prisca and Aquila. Uh, and you look at how she helped in Acts uh, 19. Apollos has come, and Apollos had some strengths, and he had uh, a limitation. What were some of Apollos' strengths in, excuse me, end of Acts chapter 18? Well, he's an he eloquent was, man. He's competent in the scriptures. Yeah, and he'd been instructed in the Lord. He's fervent in the spirit, spoke, spoke and talked accurately things concerning Jesus, but then there was a limitation. Uh, where, where, where did he lack understanding? He didn't have a full concept of the, the baptism of Jesus. He only knew about the baptism. He only knew what? John, the baptism of John. Yeah, knowing only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Now, what does our text say? We're in Acts 18.26. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the word of God more accurately. Now, Priscilla didn't stand up and, and address the synagogue, but she, she and her husband take Apollos aside and explain to him what he lacked and further equipped him to be of the service that he would be to saints when he went over to court. So ask the yeah. question again, Stevens, because I want to make sure we understand the, where the question's coming from and where we're going with the answer. Yeah, so Jane asks, can you suggest practical My audio for women so to... Oh, can you hear us, Scott? Just now, for a bit, I was out. Okay, all right. Now, well, I can't I'm, hear I'm read the... All right, that's weird. Y'all go ahead. Well, we will... Yeah, go uh, ahead and Jane... ask the question again. Ask the question again, Stephen. Yeah. Jane asks, can you suggest practical ways for women to work in personal evangelism while staying within their role of subjection? Okay. So a couple of thoughts on that. One of the things that I've seen here and that Scott's already mentioned is just that uh, women many times are better at bridge building than men are. Uh, they're just good with people and they're all about relationships. And so they uh, connect with people 
and can say, hey, would you be interested in studying? And then as we see here in Acts chapter 18, they study with, there's a, there's a man here, who her husband, Aquila, uh, who helps in that study. Um, so just initiating studies, uh, connecting with people and getting them uh, interested in the word, finding people who are interested in the word is helpful. Uh, I think also as um, we think about uh, just these practical suggestions is that um, I've seen lots of women here who are active in teaching other women um, in those particular roles. Cause I think some of Jane's question has to do with, you know, a lot, we, we want to be careful about a woman teaching a man because of first Timothy chapter two and, and that restriction there. Um, so lots of times there's opportunities where women can teach other women. True. Yeah. And isn't that referring to the, the, the primary uh, description is not for a woman not to have authority over a man. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean she can't comment and talk in a class or in a study. Right. Yes. And we have, and an, example, of- we have an example of the daughter's, I forget who it was, the daughters of this particular fella, they went to Moses to speak up on behalf of themselves in regards to the inheritance. And okay. Moses didn't know why. Well, Moses, Moses went to the Lord and said, well, what about this request from the women? And the Lord said, yeah, these women are right. So we see a woman speaking and asking questions and talking to an authority, but they weren't exercising authority over Moses. So there's a there is a yeah. level there that we have to be uh, addressing. You don't you don't want to to stifle the conversation, right? Yeah, and I think asking questions is a very very effective method mm-hmm. of teaching. That is also what, something that's submissive. Is you're asking a question. Um, you're you're not trying to be domineering. You're not trying to say, all right, here's the way it is. Uh, but Jesus. Uh, use questions frequently to, yeah. to get people to see a certain point. Um, and so there are times where if you're worried about uh, submission in a particular situation to point out a scripture and to ask a question about that scripture uh, and let people grapple with the text, pointing people to the text and asking good questions is a good way for anyone to teach, uh, honestly. Um, but particularly if you're in a situation where you, you're not wanting to, uh, disobey the command there in First Timothy two, um, but questions are a very effective teaching yeah, I, tool. I, I always ask questions in my classes, and also even when I'm uh, doing a sermon. And sometimes I know the answer to the questions, and I'll still ask it. Sometimes I don't know the answer to questions, and then there's a third possibility. I think I know the answer to the questions, but then the answer comes out more accurately from one of the other individuals in the class. So I, I like what you're saying. I agree with that, that asking a question is, is a good way for using as a teaching mode. Yes, yeah, Scott. Yeah, Scott, we just got a couple minutes left. Yeah, here. I got a signal saying bandwidth is low and Norton also decided to do something because it thought the computer. <laughs> so it may cut out on me again, but uh, so I don't know what all was said and whatnot. I'll make this real short if it's repetitive. Sorry. Two of the restrictions are that in the assembly, the women are not to be speaking and asking questions uh, because in first Corinthians chapter 14, as in all the churches of saints, let the women keep silence in the churches. This is not the church universal, even just the general membership of the church local. It's talking about when the whole church is assembled together. Verse 23. 
Uh, let the women keep silence in the churches. Do not permit them to speak. Let them be in subjection as also saith the law. If they would learn anything, let the master own husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in the church. So that's not the place to be asking those questions and and that. And, of course, we have the Timothy passage I heard Stephen mention that they're not to usurp authority over. But it wasn't the church. But look at Priscilla's example in the synagogue. It wasn't that she started addressing the synagogue, but she they took him aside and talked to him. And I caught what Stephen said, and I think that's exactly right. Uh, in other settings, for a woman to present a question to a man and say, have you looked at this passage? What do you think of this passage? You're letting the word do the teaching, but she can be a very useful vehicle of doing what Priscilla did and, and bringing him to the information. And let and, and as you said, Stephen, that's a good way for anybody to teach. There's uh, two yeah. comments in that came in on the Q&A box, one of them referring to the first discussion questions about Revelation 20, which I do want to read off uh, in a minute. I know we're going just a little bit past time here, but Randy also brought up, speaking of this subject here, that he knows a brother that feels women should not ask questions in a Bible study. So what do you, what do you say to that one? Before well, I, get I think what Scott just addressed there um, is 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in dealing with a place where women should not be speaking or asking questions, but should ask those at home or another setting, um, is referring to the assembly when the whole church is... Uh, gathered together in one place um, during that particular time. That That's where that particular prohibition is effective. Um, and in just any Bible study outside, um, I think we would see, I'm guessing Priscilla uh, is active in that Bible study they had with Apollos about right. the baptism of Jesus. Right. She's and not prohibited. Paul, after Paul's baptized Lydia, she and her household, how many Bible studies do you suppose went on between Paul and Lydia and the other members of her household there in, 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 with Lydia. But in, in the in the assembly, that's not the, the place for that. And let me say one other thing also about Priscilla. Over and over, she opened up her home for a church to meet in. And they went for places, it looked like, for the purpose of the gospel. Acts 18, they've left Corinth. Paul took them with them and dropped them off at Ephesus. And later he writes back and he talks about the church in the home of Priscilla and Aquila in Asia. Then by the time he gets to Corinth and writes Romans, they're back in Rome. And he greets the church that is in the house of Aquila and Priscilla. So she's willing to go places with her husband. Uh, when we, like when Berlin walking down, a huge help was uh, Bertina being willing to, you know, leave everything behind and, and go to uh, a foreign country and and help facilitate the work there. It was a huge help. Um, and and so being willing to do that and the way Priscilla just kept opening her home uh, for the brethren. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, Jane, Jane just responded and said, this is helpful. Uh, many women with tender consciences ask, am I doing all I can? This shows that her role does not prevent her from sharing the gospel. And one more thing on this, Natalie just asked, uh, does that mean that in the church-wide Bible study on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, women shouldn't speak? And um, that is a good question. Very good and question. some of that would depend on what you mean by a church-wide Bible study, I believe. Could we put is, that down? 
can we put that down for a continuation question answer for yeah, next sure. week? Because I think we spend more time this. on that. Yeah, let me just mention this. Like on Sunday morning, we have one adult class here studying one topic, uh, currently Matthew, another adult class studying some Christian fundamentals, another young adult class studying something else, somewhere else, and then other Christians teaching children. That's not a church-wide class. That's different groups of people uh, studying together. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's, 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 uh, let's address that a little bit further, too, next week, because we're getting some interest on that question. Oh, yeah, because we're out of time, aren't we? Yeah, well, we I, are, I just want to close talking. out with this last thing uh, based on Revelation 20. Doug made a good comment here I wanted to share with you, and then we'll close out on this comment. And this may raise other questions uh, in people's minds, too, so we do want to hear from you. Oh, by the way, go to the website, BibleQuest.org, between now and next week and any time. Type in questions right there. You'll see it's ask a question now. Just fill that out. So here's Doug's uh, response or comment. Uh, Revelation 20 does not say that the power of Satan to seduce will be bound, but the power to deceive the nations, the Gentiles. So it may be that we're talking about the completion and dissemination of God's word, which is the only thing that can prevent people from being deceived by him as he once had deceived them. Thus, as long as, excuse me, as long as there's enough people in the world and only God knows how much is enough, that still have a love for the truth, Satan's power is bound. Once mankind in general no longer accepted God's word, then the restraint against Satan's power will be lifted. Very good comments. We might want to just follow up on that later, too, next week. Well, thank you, everybody, for your comments you, and questions today. Uh, Keep coming back to God's word for answers. That's what we want to do. And uh, thanks again to everybody. Thank you. you. Take care.